Hello and welcome to what will be another exciting episode of our podcast. I want to have Daniel, our guest today, briefly introduce themselves. Daniel, please say hi to our guests. Hi, guests. <laughs> In the past, we have had several guests from higher education institutions across our great state of Illinois and beyond. To name a few, episode number 96 features Dr. Sheila Simons, who was a professor at Eastern Illinois University. Episode number 102 features Dr. D.K. Lee from the University of Illinois. Episodes number 200 and number 264 feature Justin Leiby, who's also from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I also wanted to plug episode number 210, featuring Dr. Suzanne Schick, an associate professor of medicine for the University of California. If you didn't know, Suzanne's research has helped to define a new health risk from smoking, third-hand smoke. We've all heard of secondhand smoke. What the fuck is thirdhand smoke? Well, tune into episode number 210 to learn more. I've also interviewed several professors at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, which just so happened to be colleagues of the guest in our episode today. You can check out episode 214 featuring the recently retired Dr. Dale Buck Hales. I'd like to take a brief moment to wish Buck a happy retirement. Congratulations, dude. You made it. Episode number 215 features Dr. Carla Gage, and episode number 216 features Dr. Jose Leme. I've included a link for each of the episodes that I've referenced in the show notes for this episode. I am so excited to announce that on September 9th, 2023, at 8 a.m., Southern Illinois University in Carbondale will be having their Hemp and Cannabis Symposium. The location will be at the SIU Student Center. So, once again, 8 a.m. on September 9th, 2023, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, will be presenting their Hemp and Cannabis Symposium. If you'd like an opportunity to meet staff or faculty from the university and even myself, show up on September 9th, 2023 at 8 a.m. I'd also like to announce that on September 23rd, 2023, they will be having the Hemp Hops and Shrooms Festival. This is something that I also attended last year, and it was a blast. That's September 23rd, 2023, starting at 3 p.m. If you're looking for the location, it's on the Washington Street venue in Carbondale, Illinois. Once again, that's September 23rd at 3 p.m. to see, to attend Hemp Hop Shrooms. In case you didn't know, our episodes premiere exclusively on Patreon. This means that if you're not listening to this on Patreon, you're listening to this later than our patrons. For just $3 a month, you can get exclusive access to our episodes as they release. It's one of the best ways to support our show. And if you're not able to support our show via Patreon, but you enjoy our show, please 
rate it favorably from wherever you're listening to us from. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that that is the best way to support our show. And it only takes a few moments to do. Plus, it's completely free for you to do. I just want to say before I send you into today's episode that I appreciate all of your support. It is what allows me to continue doing this show. Enjoy the episode. Daniel, thank you for sitting down with me today. I've been so excited for our conversation. And thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, I had you briefly introduce yourself. Now it's it's our time where we can, um, well, talk about anything and everything. But before we do that, I wanted to give you the space uh, to introduce yourself to my audience. Oh, um, I'm Daniel Silver. Uh, I've been teaching at SIUC for 21 years. Uh, I have passed the bar in 1993, so I'm a local attorney as well. And we have a course at SIU that I teach, uh, Paralegal 420, which is cannabis law class. And uh, you reached out to me, Cole reached out to me and said, hey, Let's talk. So we're here to talk and we'll try to talk about things that maybe you haven't heard about before today. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like I say, I am just so excited. Uh, Like you said, uh, the course catalog uh, lists your courses. It looks like PARL 420 Cannabis Law. So folks are looking for it. I think that's the way to find it. Right. Right. So. Well, cool. Well, we've got plenty of time to talk about anything and everything. Uh, what what were you most excited maybe to start with uh, this morning? I, I'm interested. Well, to- I, I think we talked about me starting with uh, the effect of bankruptcy on the cannabis industry. Yeah. Uh, and then we can go back and maybe talk about some of the history of cannabis in terms of hemp and marijuana and how cannabis came to be a schedule one controlled substance. And then maybe talk about that 0.3% bar and things like that. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so let's start with a basic understanding of bankruptcy, because maybe a lot of people don't realize. So in law, um, I tell my students that all individuals are persons, but not all persons are individuals, which might be confusing for some people. Uh, individuals are humans. And then persons include individuals, but persons also include business entities that can sue and be sued. So cult. If you slip and fall, say, in a Walmart, do you want to sue the individual making $15 an hour who failed to clean up the spill, or do you want to sue Walmart? Well, I'm thinking I'm thinking Walmart. <laughs> yeah, of course. So that's the idea of it, right? We want corporations to be able to be sued, and they're able to sue if you go in and break their window, right? Uh, it's an agency relationship. Um, and then there's individuals. And The reason that's important is because there are some bankruptcies that individuals can file and some that persons can file and some that both, right? Business entities can file and and some with both. But either way, what they're looking for is some type of a fresh start, right? Um, So a chapter seven bankruptcy is what most folks think of when they think of bankruptcy. So the person filing a chapter seven bankruptcy uh, would be able to keep certain things Uh, basically what is considered necessities, but sometimes the balance of the assets, if there are any uh, that are not protected, will be liquidated by a trustee, a bankruptcy trustee appointed to administer the bankruptcy estate. 
Um, so chapter seven bankruptcy is often known as a liquidation. So yeah, so Cole, what, what do you imagine that means to liquidate, to be a liquidation? Well, it sounds like maybe you might have to give something up. Is that, am I wrong? No, that's right, that's right. So liquidation happens when the trustee takes property that they're allowed to take and from the debtor's assets and then they sell it, converting the property to cash, and then they distribute that cash to the creditors who make claims in that particular bankruptcy, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, but then there's other types of bankruptcies, chapters 9, 11, 12, and 13. Those are also bankruptcies, uh, but they're a different type. They're what we call reorganization plans. So instead of just going through a chapter 7 bankruptcy, which might take 90 days, you might be in a reorganization plan. And instead of liquidating property, that person pays into a plan for a period of years. For example, a chapter 13 would go 60 months or five years. And the amount paid into the plan monthly is really ends up being less and, and manageable in a bankruptcy plan than what that person would have to pay outside of bankruptcy. So we're reorganizing what they're allowed to pay and we're modifying what the creditors get paid and how they get paid so that what you couldn't afford yesterday, you could afford today. Um, and you may not pay all the creditors everything they're entitled to, but at least you're paying them something. And the idea is you're making your best effort, right? Gotcha. So the bankruptcy plan is a compromise that permits debtors to get back on track while providing that structured payment to the creditors, right? And, and just really quick, I, I always wondered about that. You just said it sounds like, yeah, you kind of are agreeing that you're not going to pay the absolute amount that you owe. It's kind of like, ah, I'm going to make my best effort. Because I always wondered about that, like, where where does the money go? <laughs> or where, you know, it's like I owed something. Where What happened to that? You know, right. So it's a good point. So, you know, let's say that outside of bankruptcy, if I was to make even the minimum payment on all of my credit cards and medical bills and I got released from my job, I lost my job or something like that. Um, and I had incurred debt when I was working to, to make payments on a vehicle and my home and everything. Well, if if I look at my income today and I can't afford even the minimum payments monthly uh, as they come due, then I'm insolvent. Right. But what the bankruptcy does is it puts it into federal court and then a federal judge takes control. Right. And because there's court orders in a federal courthouse, they can compel creditors to do what they wouldn't agree to do outside of a bankruptcy. So let's say that I paid 600 a month for something and I only had two years left on it, but I can't afford to pay that and all the rest of my bills. Well, in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy, I might be able to take and stretch that out five years, still pay that secured debt, but over a longer period of time. Or I might be able to take something like credit card debt, which is unsecured, and only pay a portion of like 30% of it. And then at the end of a completed plan, the other 70% will be wiped out. And the reason you're able to do that is because the court enters a federal court order that compels both the creditors and debtors to do things or not do things. Right. Got so, it. yeah. So, so why are we talking about bankruptcies? Right. Um, what does that have to do with cannabis? <laughs> well, 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 bankruptcies kind of jump to the top of the cannabis industry litigation. You, you see, the right to bankruptcy relief is not absolute. Right. Um, bankruptcy cases uh, may have to be dismissed for cause, which which includes, you know, among other things, 
a bad faith filing of a bankruptcy case. If you file a bankruptcy in bad faith and the court believes that, they won't let you have that relief. Okay. So in addition to improper motive, bad faith includes the filing of a bankruptcy that's not in compliance with the requirements of the federal bankruptcy code or existing law. So for this discussion, I want you to remember that bankruptcy law is federal. Right. And cannabis remains illegal under federal law. Right. So bankruptcies are overseen by what we call the United States trustees office. And what happens is they appoint individuals who are what we call private panel trustees to oversee each bankruptcy that's filed. And ultimately it's overseen by the United States trustees office or the USTs office. Right. And according to them, the bankruptcy system may not be used as an instrument in the ongoing commission of a crime. And bankruptcy filings that permit or require continued illegal activity are not permitted. So it's really unique. We don't see this before. Even where there are people who are engaged in illegal activities that file bankruptcies, they've been able to file the bankruptcies. But it's unprecedented where businesses have sought the protection of bankruptcy courts to continue to get back on track, but the federal government deems what they're doing illegal. Yeah, say, can you say that last part again? Because uh, I was actually just about to ask that. You said, you did you say, did I hear you correctly say that some illegal businesses can still file? Or did I so hear you, you You see, well, what happens is, let's say that, uh, say during the financial crisis or something like that, you had a company that was engaged in illegal activities, right? Mm -hmm. And then they either want to reorganize or they want to uh, liquidate their assets. Yeah. Well, they were able to file bankruptcies. They were able to file bankruptcies and get, get on with their lives. And part of that, uh, the reasoning is that when they were doing a reorganization, they had ceased the illegal activities. Mm. And what's unique about the cannabis industry is your business isn't that type of illegal. And if you're going to continue to operate your business, you're continuing that illegal activity. Right. Right. Um, and the thinking is that bankruptcy trustees who are then tasked with administering the bankruptcy estates would, by virtue of the way the laws are right now, they'd be compelled to administer illegal assets of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. And then doing so would cause them to violate federal law. Right. Right. <laughs> they'd get caught in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Because, you, you know, the bankruptcy trustees, if it, uh, they're going to take possession and control over the assets of a business or an right. individual or the bankruptcy estate. Um, and that's true, whether it would be a cultivator or dispensary, you know, um, it would directly involve that trustee in the commission of what is a federal crime. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's true, even as these businesses are legal under state law. Right. Um, but here's where it gets funny. It's not just the businesses that cultivate or sell cannabis, right? The United States Trustee's Office has taken the position that there's no distinction under the Controlled Substances Act between a cannabis uh, product seller or grower of marijuana and businesses that provide goods or services to those marijuana companies. 
Um, so I'm going to share the screen for one second yeah. um, here. And if you want me to uh, go on and off of this, I can do that as well. Sure. Uh, but for example, with respect to landlords that lease space utilized by marijuana companies, right? It is unlawful under federal law to manage or control any place, whether permanently or temporarily, either as an owner, lessee, agent, employee, occupant, or mortgagee, and knowingly and intentionally rent, lease, profit from, or make available for use with or without compensation, the place for the purpose of unlawfully manufacturing, storing, distributing, or using a controlled substance, right? So that's right. That means a landlord who leases to a cannabis business is also prohibited from bankruptcy relief, right? So consequently, the UST's office has consistently sought the dismissal of bankruptcy petitions that are filed by growers and dispensaries, um, as well as the ancillary enterprises that provide goods and services to marijuana businesses. And, and the upshot is that companies or individuals that directly derive their income from the manufacturing or distributing or dispensing or possessing of marijuana are now ineligible for bankruptcy relief that you and I might otherwise be entitled to. Wow. Right? So let's talk about a few of these cases, um, the more, you know, the, the more clear cases. So the 10th Circuit uh, Bankruptcy Appellate Panel um, in a case called Arenas versus United States, they affirmed the dismissal of a Chapter 7 debtor's case. And that court specifically found that a debtor in the marijuana business cannot obtain relief in a federal bankruptcy court. So in Arenas, A-R-E-N-A-S, um, the husband and wife were debtors and they were licensed in Colorado to legally grow and dispense marijuana. And they owned a building where one of the units was used for marijuana cultivation and another unit was rented to a dispenser, right? Pretty easy to do in, in when it's legal. After litigation with their renters, a renter had sued them, a different renter had sued them, and it resulted in a state court judgment against them. So they sought relief under Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And when that started to get challenged, they tried to convert that to a Chapter 13 plan, right? And they wanted to try to reorganize their business in a Chapter 13 um, so that they could take care of the debt and continue to make their living, right? Um, but in order to be in a Chapter 13 plan, you have to propose how you're going to fund that Chapter 13 plan. What income are you going to use to fund the payments monthly for the next five years? And the income would be, at least in part, from the operation of their cannabis businesses. <laughs> right. Right. So the bankruptcy court found that even though their conduct was legal under Colorado law, it still violated the Federal Controlled Substances Act, right? And so that proposed bankruptcy would be funded from profits from what they consider an ongoing criminal activity under federal law. Um, and that would involve also the Chapter 13 trustee to administer the funds derived from that violation of the Controlled Substances Act. 
And so not only would the chapter 13 plan be forbidden because it would be funded in part with the cannabis business, but the bankruptcy court also said that they couldn't do a chapter seven um, because it would be impossible, they said, for the chapter seven trustee to administer those assets right. in a liquidation. Right. Uh, and remember, a chapter seven bankruptcy is a liquidation. Right. Um, and because selling and distributing the proceeds of marijuana assets would constitute federal offenses, that would compel the bankruptcy trustee to violate federal law. Yeah. Right. And some of their biggest assets, if I could just quickly say, uh, is literal product, which, of course, yeah. they couldn't take. Right. So, anyway. Although I don't I don't really agree with that part of the decision, because uh, if if other companies throughout our history, throughout our nation's history, have have been engaged in illegal activities. And what the trustees do in those types of chapter sevens is they take that and they destroy the illegal assets. So in theory, if these people did want to liquidate and just go do something else, the trustee wouldn't have to be engaged in the liquidation and sale of that product. They could just destroy that product, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which would not engage, you know, put them in, in harm's way. Um, in other words, the assets don't need to be liquidated. They could be destroyed. So I, I, didn't, I didn't really agree with that reasoning, um, but... Um, because because there would be no duty on the chapter seven trustee to sell and distribute the proceeds right and and, and trustees abandon assets as well all the time hmm. so they just don't think it, there's value in administering the estate because they also get a fee for what they administer and sometimes the value is so low that there's no value to them so they can just file a, an abandonment with the court they're going to abandon that and let them keep it even though it's not otherwise protected got it um, uh, and the debtors, if they filed a Chapter 7, wouldn't be trying to retain the business because the Chapter 7 liquidation would end that business enterprise. Right. Um, and, and also the fact of no recovery by creditors in a Chapter 7 liquidation is pretty much the norm. So I don't really agree with that. Um, and there was a court in the Northern District of California that also didn't agree with that. Um, unlike In Ray Arenas, that federal court in California took a different approach. They denied confirmation of a chapter 13 plan for pretty much the same reasons, right? It was a marijuana cultivator uh, who was trying to file a chapter 13 and get back on track. Um, but um, they permitted them to pursue a chapter seven reasoning that the mere fact that a trustee cannot liquidate the debtor's assets doesn't render that ineligible ineligibility right um and i i, I agree with that uh but i i don't agree with the overall thing but i do think you know there, i don't see the bar in the chapter seven that you're going to liquidate anyway um then there's a case that's decided in the southern district of california in ray mother earth's alternative healing co-op and there there was a marijuana dispensary that was denied chapter 11 relief and so chapter 13s are what individuals file, like a married couple. Mm -hmm. And then chapter 11 would be what a corporation would file. Got it. Okay, a business entity. Mm -hmm. um, and the court found that the funding source of the plan was subject to forfeiture and therefore not permitted for funding the, the bankruptcy plan. 
And that's it's that gets a little tricky too because we're going to start talking about forfeiture of the property once they get wind that you're trying to do something under federal law. Because mm -hmm. it remains subject to forfeiture. So the impossibility of the debtor proposing a viable reorganization plan was determined to be a bad faith filing and the case was dismissed. Wow. Right. And then there's another case in the Western District of Michigan, uh, in Ray Jerry Johnson. And Mr. Johnson was a licensed grower and he was a seller of medical marijuana. He was an individual. He filed a Chapter 13 bankruptcy to prevent the foreclosure of his home. So this is a guy who was going to lose his home, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Johnson was a partially disabled 60-year-old man who, as a state-licensed caregiver, grew medical marijuana on a small scale in his basement of in the basement of his house. And he had he only did it for three patients, and he was legally doing it, right? Only half of his income was from the sale of marijuana with the remainder coming from social security disability benefits, right? So the UST filed a motion to dismiss that bankruptcy case. And the debtor argued that his plan would be funded exclusively by his social security income. And he wouldn't use any of the money from the medical marijuana sales. And you could see why that's not a good argument for him because he's just, you know, you're intermingling those funds, you, you know, so you're not using it to pay rent or whatever. But, right, right. Um, so the court said, you know, notwithstanding that they proposed a Chapter 13 payment from that untainted source, that their continuing operation of the marijuana business, uh, even if the incomes were somehow segregated, would require the court, the trustee, and even the debtor uh, to continue to violate federal law. Um, so this guy is at risk of losing his home. So with losing his home at stake, Mr. Johnson uh, was told, if you discontinue that business and get rid of all the assets and get it uh, approved by the UST inspection, then we'll let you file a Chapter 13 to protect your home. So that was an entire source of half of his income. Mm -hmm. And he complied. He had to comply because he had to try and save his home. Right. Right. Um, and then his bankruptcy plan was confirmed. So that's really rough on, on him, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And remember, under the Controlled Substances Act, there's no distinction between a seller or grower of marijuana <laughs> and those downstream businesses that transact with the industry. Uh, like landlords renting space to sellers or growers, right? Yeah. So again, the Controlled Substances Act makes it illegal to manage or control any place uh, as an owner or lessee, agent, employee, occupant, or mortgagee, and knowingly or intentionally renting, leasing, profiting from, making available for use for the purpose of unlawfully manufacturing, storing, distributing, or using a controlled substance, okay? Uh, so then we get these other cases. So landlords that knowingly rent space, they're not doing it themselves, but they rent space used by others for cultivation or retail sale of marijuana. They can't file bankruptcy, right? Right. So where does this go? So in the Southern District of Florida, a case in Ray Arms Ventures, LLC, the owner of a single commercial property sought bankruptcy protection to stop a foreclosure, right? 
Now, the debtor proposed a Chapter 11 plan that would be funded by their rental incomes, right? One of the tenants who was paying rent ran this, uh, this retail dispensary, right? So that tenant was engaged in manufacturing medical marijuana in the premises by permission of the debtor as landlord. And the court dismissed the case saying that it was a bad faith filing. So a landlord who derives even just a portion of its income from leasing premises used by tenants for marijuana cultivation are also precluded from bankruptcy protection. A Colorado landlord that received only about 25% of its income from a tenant who used the space to cultivate marijuana faced a dismissal of their case in a case called NRA Rent Right Super Kegs, was the name of the case. Uh, the court found that the landlord's lease of property, knowing it would be used for the purpose illegal under federal law, violated federal law and constituted cause to dismiss the plan because there was at least uh, even that small percentage of money coming from that one apartment. Wow. Wow. Thank yeah. you. But it gets worse. Just so you know. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> the debtor's decision to continue renting space to the tenants who were violating uh, the Controlled Substances Act turned out to place that debtor's assets at risk because federal law allows the federal government to seize property that they learn is being used for illegal purposes. So you make an effort to file a bankruptcy. You learn after you file that it's not that. And if a court like this gets involved, because of the risks associated with the marijuana tenant, the bankruptcy court held that that debtor's continuing lease with the marijuana entity constituted a gross mismanagement of the bankruptcy estate. And could lead to forfeiture of property. Wow. Seizure of property, right? Um, so what is that? And it also uh, was gross mismanagement of the estate uh, uh, under 11 USC uh, section uh, 1112 or 1112B4B. Um, but yeah, so that's how far they're taking this, right? And, and really it's unclear at this point what would constitute aiding and abetting or facilitating in violation of federal law in relation to the bankruptcy filings, right? Uh, for example, would a hardware store that knowingly sells general purpose gardening supplies used for marijuana cultivation risk a finding of facilitating aiding or abetting? Right? Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. I actually had yeah. it written down as a question. <laughs> You know, would the owner of a 100-unit apartment building in a state that permits recreational use of marijuana be deprived of protections of bankruptcy because just one of the residential tenants uh, cultivates and sells? And that was another question, just quickly, since you brought it up, that that I was wondering, you know, let's say that I don't personally work in the cannabis industry right, right now, but let's pretend I do, and I pay my rent with the money I make from the cannabis industry. Does that, is that the same thing? It is the same thing. Well, wow. according to the courts, because right. what you're doing is the, the come from an illegal activity. And so it implicates who's ever going to be administering the bankruptcy estate. Right. Uh, here's one for you. What about a security guard or a janitor? who just comes into work every day, they're employed by a cultivation or a dispensary, right? Uh, are they not eligible to file a bankruptcy because they're derived from that 
dispensary or from that cultivation center. And all they're doing is cleaning up, right? The guard derives that guard's income from the operation of that facility. Same. Under this reasoning, I don't see how they're protected. Right? And they're not making tons of money. They're just getting a regular salary doing cleanup, you know. But, yeah. So it's really unclear how far this reasoning will go. And I just think it's important that we pay attention to stuff like that because, you know, how even just advising a client, I don't see how you can tell them in, in any good faith that they can do any of this if, if they are worried about, uh, and, and, you know, I don't know if you're following the industry right now, but uh, the overproduction of cannabis across the country is already an, a huge problem, right? We're just destroying uh, tons of, grown cannabis because they can't distribute it fast enough. And you've got all these people that have poured fortunes into getting uh, able to be able to do it and competing against all these other people. And they finally get their ability to do it in all of these states, right? And then what are we gonna do when we go national, right? So what you're gonna see is a lot of people who will need to get relief under the bankruptcy code. You know, I've been doing bankruptcy since 1993. Um, what are they going to do? They're going to have to go out of business and start from scratch. Right. That's That seems overly burdensome to me. We don't do that to anyone else. And it, um, also, it also seems like, and, and I'm just curious, maybe it's hard to say this because we're so, maybe you can't weigh in on this because we aren't very far into this, but I'm just curious. I feel like these things would affect, and I know this is vague, but like normal individuals more than it would any of these large entities with, I mean, capital, of course, right? Because if they've got a bunch of capital behind them, they're going to be nowhere near a bankruptcy. But I don't know. It's just a thought. Well, I've, I, I've I would say of... that that that's in it, that's a good thought, but I'm not sure I, I actually agree with that because I do okay. think that some of the people that poured a fortune into some of these businesses, you know, I mean, just because you personally have money, Mm -hmm. the businesses themselves are distinctly separate from the individuals if they're incorporated. They're separate and distinct entities under the law who can sue or be sued, which is why I say somebody like maybe the former president might have had a lot of bankruptcies mm -hmm. of the businesses, but not himself, right, for example. Um, because when you have a business that needs relief to continue to operate or even to liquidate, um, you need to file that bankruptcy to protect yourself and to protect the people who are engaged in the business, right? You're protecting not just yourself, but you're protecting all the officers, the directors, shareholders, you know, a lot of different people are involved uh, and employees, right? Uh, so, so it is possible that people who are also have a lot of money individually, if their businesses have to tank because of the market, or they need to reorganize because of the market. It could be somebody who's just an individual, uh, like some of these cases, or it could be one of the bigger businesses and everything in between. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting uh, thought. Um, so yeah. you want to talk? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. And I mean, I now that you even talk through that, 
you know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to name any names right now. And maybe it's not even important to, but I, I have heard, you know, it questioned how profitable these cannabis companies actually are. So to your point and to kind of counter my own point, just because these big groups have a lot of money behind them doesn't mean that the operations themselves are bringing in heaps of profit, right? It's, yeah. Is that to your point? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's getting worse with every uh, thing that keeps happening across the country. I mean, we're, the, the buy-in um, is, is difficult. And then the competition is just going to get worse if it ever goes national. Um, yeah. It's already pretty tough. You, If you look at what uh, they've been destroying in Canada, and good product, but they have to destroy it because there's the, they're overproducing. Yeah. And that's costing them a lot of money. Uh, and they have to account for all of that as well. Right. Right. Um, uh, plus, it's going to, things are already leveling off because the illegal market, uh, the illegal market um, is, um, is growing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and if, yeah. If I could real quick, just because I don't want to bring this up later when it's like irrelevant. I wrote this down um, just in the spirit of, uh, you know, I was asking um, about the apartment and wouldn't they technically be kind of giving up their ability to, you know, file bankruptcy, which is obviously something a, a big entity like that would not want to do uh, by approving these uh, activities. Another thought I had. So I've been doing interviews with cannabis consumption lounges across the state of Illinois. And as you may know, Daniel, they're not many, but there are a few close to where you are. Yeah, we have, we have one right in Carbondale, right? Yeah. And, and it's like a lot of people have been asking, why aren't there more? And the, in, the uh, business owners were able to shed some light on that. But one of the things that I did not even consider until I've spoke to you is they are – overseeing the use which i think is part of what you're talking about you know it doesn't only have to be the manufacturer go ahead well they're not overseeing the use they're just deriving income from it fair so they're not they're not in control of the business they lease it to somebody who's in control the only the only association they have at all is that they're their landlord mm. and as a landlord they wouldn't be able to file a bankruptcy if they need to because they're deriving their income from that tenant. And that's what I was working up to ask you is like maybe among the many other reasons that those business owners listed, which is like their inability to sell. Let's just name a few. I don't want to get too into it, but just, uh, you know, they can't sell snacks. They can't dispense cannabis. The only way they can profit off of people is if they, you know, charge them a cover charge or sell them, uh, you know, a cannabis ancillary product. So they have very little way to make money. And then on top of that, what you're revealing or what you're what I'm learning from you today is that if everything went south, they couldn't even file bankruptcy on this whole project. That's what it appears. Right. Yeah. So thank you for helping me make that point. I just wanted to share something I learned through our conversation today. Thank you. Um, so do you want to switch gears and talk about a little history? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do okay. it. So we're switching gears here, and we're going to talk about the Federal Controlled Substances Act. And Actually, schedule. I do have a few more questions before we talk history. I was looking yeah, at my please. notes that I was taking please. while we were talking. I thought maybe that 
bankruptcy being illegal, um, and it maybe sounds like this isn't the case, but I've heard that, for example, the reason cannabis companies have uh, trouble with taxes is something from like the Al Capone days where the federal government was like, I think Al Capone like literally tried to file taxes on his operation and they were like, bro, you can't do that. Um, so I thought maybe it was something similar. Um, and I guess my question that I wanted to ask, I'm I'm not sure if you can weigh in on that, but the question I was really going to ask is, you know, the way that this has been allowed to go on is because of what we know is the coal memo. I'm sure you know that like the uh, state run cannabis markets. And I just wondered, you know, that's a pretty narrow scope. It kind of defines, you know, make sure basically the coal memo says you can do this. You can have a legal cannabis market as long as there are not sales to minors, as long as there are not interstate sales. And there's a, a few other quantifying factors. And it basically says we will not mess with you unless you do those things. And I guess my question is, do we need something by way of a coal memo for like bankruptcy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like you are, well, okay. you know, you know, it's an interesting question because um, really when we go through the history, you'll see that uh, the, it was only relatively recently after they, they made it illegal um, that the, the farm acts started coming out. And they started treating it as a crop and kind of got these exceptions to be able to grow hemp and things like that. So they had to build in these exceptions to ancillary laws. Um, and that's, that promoted a lot. And then people like Boehner coming in who are like, like insiders to the political elite uh, and, you know, uber wealthy, they, they're making too much money off of this to not have the federal government let it, you know, turn the turn. But really at any moment, who's ever running the thing, the federal government could turn around and say, you know what, today we're going to start enforcing it because it's illegal. We, we've, we've let the experiment play out and we don't agree with it now. So the memo doesn't mean a thing is what I'm saying. Yeah. In, well, in reality. And especially after Jeff Sessions, uh, what did he do to it? He rescinded it. So it's not even in. It's it's, it's not a law. Yeah, it's in any event. Um, yeah. it's it's a decision. They're they're trying to see how this experiment pay, plays out originally, but then when people of such such important insiders um, and and wealthy people are so got so entrenched in this, it's hard for the people that they're paying uh, to say you can't do it. Right. Um, but at the same time, the way they've rolled it out from state to state is going to be a real problem if they if we ever go federal let's say they legalize it federal yeah i would say more than half the people who spent all that time and effort getting their businesses running would go out of business i can suddenly buy california pot legally right you can see where that's going right or hawaii right um so what about so so there's a benefit to keeping it to the states but there's this detriment and then also crossing state lines, right? Um, so the rollout, I wish we could go back in time and, and just start it properly, but that's not what happened, right? Yeah. And uh, really quick before we go to the history, uh, you mm -hmm. listed off like three or four cases. I'll have you send those to me if you can. But one mm -hmm. thing that I was curious, 
Can you like name them again? The last one said Enray. I swear the names sounded familiar with each case. Am I wrong in that? Or was I just like, what were the case names again? I don't know. So uh, Enray Rent Right Super Kegs. That's okay. the one out of Colorado, right? And then um, Enray Arm Ventures LLC. That was one out of uh, Southern District of Florida, right? Um, and uh, Enray uh, Jerry L. Johnson. They're Enray because. So normally when you see a case citation, it's somebody versus somebody that's known as an adversary proceeding. Okay. And that's where one person is against the other person. But when there's certain types of cases that we call non-adversarial in the matter of or in Ray, um, like oh. an adoption and bankruptcies, you file it, you could do an involuntary, but we're talking about voluntary filings. And so you file a voluntary bankruptcy, it's in Ray, whoever that debtor is. Gotcha. So people right. that understand more about this topic are laughing at me for answering or asking that question. Right. Plus, <laughs> I would point out that when you uh, when you go back through this to edit it, you'll be able to see all those case names and I'll send them to you with the citations. Perfect. Cool. How's that sound? That's perfect. We love it. So, well, that's all I had for questions on uh, bankruptcy, my friend. Let's do history. Okay. So let's switch gears. So the Federal Controlled Substances Act it schedules drugs on scales of illegality, right? Um, like, for example, a Schedule One controlled substance, right? And the Controlled Substances Act is that statute that the folks are referring to when they say cannabis is illegal at the federal level uh, as a Schedule One controlled substance. Uh, the irony is that cannabis does not really meet the definition of a Schedule One controlled substance. Um, uh, you know, a substance is, is scheduled as Schedule One or a Schedule One narcotic if it is found to have no currently accepted medical use and found to have a high potential for abuse, right? Mm -hmm. So a person who's not, uh, you know, who's, who's say, anti-cannabis may think, okay, marijuana uh, fits that definition. There's no accepted medical use according to them, and it has a high potential for abuse, according to them. But why then did they include hemp in that definition as a class, you know, a Schedule One narcotic in the 1970s Controlled Substances Act? Because plainly, nobody can legitimately argue that it has a high potential for abuse, right? Right, right. Um, but so how did how did something like that happen, right? Well, while evidence of hemp use around the world goes back thousands of years, um, let's just look at our own country, right? When our nation was young, um, who was using and growing hemp as a regular crop? You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, that it was just a, a regular thing. They didn't think there was anything wrong with it. In fact. You already know that our legal tenor, you know, money early on was was once made from hemp paper, right? Um, and several drafts of the Declaration of Independence were written on hemp paper. So certainly nothing was wrong with it then. And really from 1776 to 1937, all that time, hemp was a major American crop. And, you know, we made all our textiles from hemp. It was very you know, the main thing, ship sales were made from hemp because we learned early on that salt water deteriorates cotton, right? So you don't want a cotton sale, you want a hemp sale, right? Mm -hmm. And on an annual basis, 
one acre of hemp will produce as much fiber as say two to three acres of cotton, right? So environmentally, there's a lot of reasons. And you know, hemp fiber is stronger and softer than cotton and it lasts twice as long. And uh, it's not subject to things like the risk of mildew that cotton is. So cotton requires large quantities of pesticides and herbicides, right? In fact, 50% of the world's pesticides and herbicides are used in the production of cotton. Wow. And we don't think about that, right? Although you can see, you know, when we talk about things like the climate crisis and everything else going on, that there's a lot of things we don't prioritize thinking about because it's not convenient for whatever someone's agenda is, right? And, you know, hemp requires uh, little or no pesticides. Uh, no herbicides, and really only moderate amounts of fertilizer. So, you know, what sense does this make, right? Right. Um, you've probably seen those videos, those black and white videos during World War II. American farmers were paid by the government to grow hemp. And yeah. they cultivated more than 150 million pounds of industrial hemp to support our war effort, right? Do you mind if I play a quick snippet of that just for folks that haven't no, seen I it love before? It. It's I love pretty that. crazy too. Uh, yeah, I show it to my class too. I've got it if you can't find it. Yeah, yeah, no, I've actually got it pulled up. Here we go. I'm ready to go. Look at you. Yep, that's it. For all those non-believers. Yeah, for our listeners, it's the United States Department of Agriculture. Hemp for victory. It's this old tape. And... um play a little bit more of it because it's a little bit longer but uh yeah it's about 15 minutes long these ancient grecian temples were new hemp was already old in the service of mankind for thousands of years even then this plant had been grown for cordage and coarse cloth in china and elsewhere in the east but yeah this is from our government folks for centuries yeah. prior to about 18 yeah, they're talking probably about the sales the that sailed the western seas were rigged with hemp and rope and sails bingo for the sailor no less than the hangman so it's just funny that that our government made this and and before we move on can i ask you really quickly have you heard that uh, our government actually denied the existence of this film until i believe uh i never heard that uh, uh let me see here it you know i read it on wikipedia so who knows if it's if it's real right um, yeah and our government's pretty large so i would want to know who what individuals you know but uh here's what i read on on wikipedia and for folks they should definitely look up the citation on this it looks like uh it's the great book hemp the complete guide to the environmental commercial and medicinal uses of the world's most extraordinary plant that's what they cite um before 1989, the film was relatively unknown. The United States government denied ever having made such a film. Um, the United States Department of Agriculture Library and the Library of Congress told all interested parties that no such movie was made by the USDA or any branch of the U.S. government. Uh, Do you think seriously? that's not true? I don't know. I don't know, yeah. But here's where I thought this was interesting. Uh, two VH... Oh. Two VHS copies were recovered and donated to the Library of Congress on nine, on May 19th, 1989 by Maria Farrow, Carl Packard, and Jack Herrera. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so who knows, folks, do the research on that one. Um, but anyways, hint for victory. Thank you. I, I'm glad we talked about that. Wanted to yeah, show I love a little that. snippet. So. You know, and of course, all this raises the question, why would we as a nation suddenly 
make the use of this amazing crop illegal, right? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Um, so some say it's because hemp is such a fabulous source of oils that the petroleum companies lobbied Congress to bunch it together with marijuana, right? And when Rudolf Diesel, yes, that diesel, produced his engine in 1896, he designed it to run off of vegetable and seed oils, especially hemp, uh, which he thought was superior to petroleum. Um, and, you know, hemp seed oils can be used to produce non-toxic diesel fuels. It can be used for paints, varnish, detergents, inks, lubricating oil, all the things that you might think of. And just think about that for a second. A biofuel is a fuel that can be grown by our farmers and is superior to foreign oil. You, you see, we try to do that with corn, but it would be much easier and more economically and environmentally sound to use hemp. So, so let's put that reality aside for a moment, okay? Let's look at the politics of this. So in the 1920s, the Treasury Secretary was Andrew Mellon, which you might have heard of. And... Andrew Mellon arranged for his bank to loan money to his buddies at DuPont to take over General Motors. And DuPont had developed a new gasoline additive that developed the sulfate and sulfide process that made trees into paper, right? So Mellon was a banker who later became president of Gulf Oil, right? And then in the 1930s, Ford Motor Company operated a successful biomass fuel conversion plant where they used the cellulose that they had at Iron Mountain, Michigan. And the, the Ford engineers originally extracted methanol and charcoal fuel and tar and pitch and ethyl acetate and creosote, and they used that for hemp, right? And the same fundamental ingredients for industry were also being made from fossil fuels. So there was this competition happening, right? Again, fossil fuels versus hemp oils, right? Now, during that same period, DuPont was developing cellophane, nylon, and Dacron, which are developed from fossil fuels. And DuPont held the patents on many synthetics and became a leader in the development of paints and rayon and synthetic rubber and plastics and chemicals and we had photographic film at the time and insecticides and, you know, all those horrible agricultural chemicals, right? Ugh. But now at the same time, the timber industry lobbied Congress uh, due to the competition for paper because you could make paper from trees or you could make paper from hemp. So on an annual basis, one acre of hemp will produce as much paper as two to four acres of trees. Right. And then production of hemp paper requires very little chemicals in the manufacturing process. Uh, and paper made from trees is enormously chemical ridden. Right. So it takes years for trees to grow until they can be harvested for paper or wood. Right. So so call, how long do you think it takes hemp to be ready to harvest? Well, uh, I mean, within. Within a summer. I think 120 days. Yeah. That's it. So we can make the paper from hemp, which you can harvest after 120 days, or you can cut down all these trees, right? <laughs> right. Again, there's something environmental there that we are, you know, so suicidal as a, as a species. 
Um, you know, harvesting hemp rather than trees also eliminates erosion because you have that erosion due to logging and it reduces the topsoil loss and, you know, water pollution, right? Sure. Um, so today the paper industry amounts for over a billion dollars a year and 80% of that was from imported hemp. So we were fine importing the hemp after it had already been processed. We just didn't manufacture it ourselves because we're stupid. Um, uh, imported, right? So right. government figures estimated that 10,000 acres devoted to hemp would produce as much paper as 40,000 acres of average tree pulp land, right? So again, completely illogical. So why did we do that? Okay, enter William Randolph Hearst. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Hearst, but Hearst Company was a major consumer of cheap tree pulp paper that had replaced hemp paper in the late 19th century. And Hearst was one of the major newspaper magnates uh, on the planet, uber wealthy. Uh, if you ever go to California, there's Hearst Castle that you can tour. And he had wild animals brought in from all over the world. And everything is gold plated, gold uh, everything is it's just it's an amazing place I, I visited there if you haven't visited there it's amazing but the Hearst Corporation was also a major logging company and produced DuPont's chemical drenched tree pulp paper you know which yellowed and fell apart after a short time but it was the paper they used in their newspapers because mm -hmm. he was one of the major newspapers in the country in the world and Hearst newspapers were in large part fueled by advertising and that advertising was primarily from petrochemical industries. Um, and also, Hearst bought off all this land in third world countries to clear cut trees, right? Um, so all of the paper the company planned to make by deforesting its vast timber holdings were in danger of being replaced by this low cost, high quality paper made from hemp. So you may be seeing a picture forming here, where at that time you had DuPont, you had Hearst, you had Mellon, all these powerful people, they wanted cannabis included in an anti-narcotics bill bunched together with marijuana, right? So that's what they were using marijuana for. They didn't really care about marijuana. They cared about the hemp, right? Right. So Hearst engaged in this media campaign and he played on the prejudice of our American people to terrorize the nation into believing that Mexicans were in a unified conspiracy to demonize our youth through their Mexican drug, you know, marijuana, right? Um, so with a large section of the public influenced, infusing money into the politics and politicians, you see it today, uh, and the influence of power wielded, you know, it didn't matter that hemp couldn't be a narcotic. It didn't, it didn't meet, matter that it didn't meet, it, the plain definition of a schedule one narcotic. Um, you know, never mind that it doesn't have THC sufficient to get you high. Um, the important thing was to have it completely removed from society and industry. And the way you did that was by this campaign to demonize marijuana, which you could then include hemp in as general cannabis, right? Um, so that's kind of what happened. So then uh, when the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was formed in 1932, Mellon's nephew was a guy named Harry J. Anslinger, which you might have seen films on. And Anslinger was appointed head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. 
which is a job in Mellon's Treasury Department that he created for Mr. Anslinger, right? And that so was, it was in the Treasury Department. You said, yeah, wow, yeah, <laughs> funny. And then in 1935, the Treasury Department began drafting a bill called the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. Yeah, so in 1937, Anslinger went before this committee hearing and called for a total ban on marijuana, which would include hemp. And the bureaucrats presented this measure in, you know, the guise of a tax revenue bill, right? House Ways and Means Committee kind of thing. And that was chaired by DuPont's ally, Robert Doughton of North Carolina, right? So at the hearings, a few people did show up to testify, to say, what are you doing? Stop this. So there was a guy named Ralph Lozier uh, of the National Oil Seed Institute, and he showed up representing paint manufacturers, lubrication oil processors, and said, hey, hemp seed is essential. It's an essential commodity for our businesses. You cannot do this. You need to you know, do something about that. And then there was a guy named Dr. William C. Woodward. Uh, he was with the American Medical Association. He, he protested uh, the way the word marijuana was being used in the bill um, to deliberately confuse and to conflagrate the medical industrial hemp communities, right? So the testimony was there, but you know, you already know the act passed without a roll call vote, right? Yeah. And then, and that's, yeah, please, yeah, interrupt me anytime. It's, it's uh, so I weird. was going to ask, I have been told by a friend, but it, we were in a smoky circle. So I, have not been able to confirm this through my research, but since you're talking about it, I wanted to ask you if you've heard that one of the objections was from like somebody in the, and I can't think of the scientific word for it right now. So I'm just going to say the layman term, the bird industry, like uh, people that care avian. for birds, avians. Thank you. Yeah. Avian, some avian expert. And what he told me was that, yeah, like somehow the avian industry got some exemption because they were able to prove that the hemp seed itself had so many like omega-3 fatty acids or something like that, that it was like essential for a bird's coat, uh, again, for lack of better words. Have you heard about any of this at all? Never heard any of that before. Okay, again, I, it was in a smoky circle. That. So I, I hope maybe if somebody uh, is out there and knows more details, please send them to me. Uh, you know, I want to be able to put some proof behind the pudding <laughs> so you, you don't want it to be for the birds i get it right thank you good one good one <laughs> yeah so anyways that's that that was my question there I, I just since you were talking about uh industry people that like voiced their opposition like hey what are you doing i didn't know if you had heard about that because that i had heard about what you were talking about but the only the thing that i took home that i thought was interesting was his little claim about the bird the avian industry so right um and i don't think a lot of the people that vote on these things really know what they're talking about they're voting more for other reasons yeah yeah you know uh, you know in 1937 um coincidentally right on the heels of that passage what did dupont do they filed that's when they filed their patents for nylon and, you know, that's a synthetic fiber that took over many of the textiles and cordage markets that were otherwise produced by him, right? Um, and, you know, after passage at that time, more than half the American cars on the road were built by GM, which guaranteed DuPont that market for paints and varnishes and plastics and rubber 
all of those things that might have been, uh, you know, produced by hemp, right? Mm -hmm. um, in other words, this had little or nothing to do with the marijuana, right? Um, you know, all GM cars were then, and as a consequence, they were designed to use that tetraethyl leaded fuel exclusively. That's how they were designed, which contained those additives that DuPont manufactured, right? Um, and all competition from hemp had been outlawed, <laughs> right? Which is pretty smart when you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you're a business person, uh, and that couldn't be accomplished without all cannabis being lumped together to be determined as a class one controlled substance, right? Um, even so, I'm going to share my screen again. Um, Henry Ford. And I just want to say really quick, we don't have to dwell on this thought too much because we'll return to it later. I know you wanted to talk mm -hmm. about 0.03% THC, but I think it is notable. It, like, Put it in the back of your minds, listeners, what Daniel just said. We are putting all cannabis under one umbrella. That's how it started. That's a teaser for it kind of changes here, you know, in the future, but. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. Exactly. I'm excited for this. Yeah. So Henry Ford managed to develop a car in 1941. So this is after um, using hemp for plastics and fuels, because what he was trying to do is to show, you know, you guys are making a mistake. And, and he was on top of this. Um, and uh, so we'll play some of this. And Henry Ford's first Model T was built to run on hemp gasoline, and the car itself was constructed from hemp. On his large estate, Ford was photographed among his hemp fields. The car, grown from the soil, had hemp plastic panels whose impact strength was 10 times stronger than steel. Henry Ford ran 40,000 vehicles on hemp fuel from only 10,000 acres. The emissions are what you exhale, and the next year's crop reconverts it back into oxygen. That's a natural cycle fuel. We think that our ethanol and biofuels and flex fuel systems are all the cutting edge, but biofuel development, of course, is nothing new. Way back in the 1930s, Henry Ford was hard at work in the alternative fuel sector, and in 1941, he constructed a hemp-fueled and hemp-bodied prototype car. The plastic body panels were composed of 70% cellulose fibers, including industrial strength, mixed with a resin binder, and apparently they were pretty sturdy. A guy beats on the trunk with an axe and it fails to leave a mark. Industrial hemp won't make you high. It has no THC in it, but its association with marijuana has historically been a major legal stumbling block. There's some of you that think I'm full of shit, but Sorry. the actual footage of 1941 should be proof enough for you. Amongst the thousands of products made from him, one of the most extraordinary is Henry Ford's plastic car. Built in 1941, it contained cellulose fibers derived from hemp, sisal, and wheat straw. 
The plastic was lighter than steel, yet could withstand ten times the impact without denting. Wow. And hey, no worries about the cursing people. We, we do that all the time on this show. <laughs> well, I have two more videos to show you if you'd like to see them. I would absolutely love to see them. Yeah, dude. Let's do it. When I actually started to take a look at the numbers and just how green the car was, it was amazing to me. That's when I was convinced I have to make this car out of cannabis. You'll probably think that looks like a regular fiberglass car or even a steel car just looking at it. When you go up and you touch it and you knock on it, you'll go like, wow, that's fiberglass. But actually it's not fiberglass. We used about, typically about three plies of woven hemp and that made it rigid enough to keep its shape. Built by Bruce Dietzen, this stunning sports car is made from around 100 pounds of hemp as well as being a lot lighter than fiberglass or steel. The unusual material has another impressive quality. It's 10 times more uh, dent resistant than steel. I'm not gonna do that right now. Although this prototype is built on a Mazda chassis, Bruce hopes that if the car gets to production, that too will be made from hemp. He took his inspiration from Henry Ford, the great pioneer of affordable motoring, who was said to have experimented with hemp as both a material and a fuel in the 1940s. Not everyone is familiar with Henry Ford's cannabis car. It was made not only out of cannabis, but also used soy for the resin, and it also used flax and some other things, wheat straw, etc. The most interesting aspect of that car is that he used both cannabis for the strength in the body, and then he also used cannabis remnants. He would make that into a fuel. His car, incredibly, was about three times greener than today's electric vehicles because of how it was made and then how it was fueled. Bruce estimates that building the car cost him around $200,000 in cash and a further $200,000 in lost earnings. But he hopes his project will help him spread his environmental message. It sets an example and it lets people know that we can make everything out of plants. That's what Henry Ford was really out to tell everyone when he created his first cannabis car. So you pull up, buddy. Car's amazing. Thank you. Amazing. This is beautiful, man. We may not be able to pull up to our local gas stations right now and say, fill it up with hemp gasoline because we have to wait for these fuel companies to catch up and start doing the right thing. It's really a symbolic product right now, but I think as we go into the future, we're going to see more and more companies realizing that what we have to do is start making things from plants if we're going to turn things around and start to reverse climate change. As well as wanting to get the car to manufacture, Bruce is developing a TV show featuring the car, which will look at all the possibilities for the use of hemp in the future. I live in Florida. Uh, hemp is still illegal to grow in Florida. I had to import 
the woven material all the way from China because we still don't even have facilities that can make fabrics like, like this out of hemp. It has to come out of places like China. What a terrible wasted opportunity. What if we could be employing all these people. Or we're gonna take the car around the country and investigate these things because if cannabis can be used this many different ways, we've got to accelerate the process of making it legal across the country and start using it more and more and more for both ecological purposes and medical purposes, etc. Got another okay. video queued up. I have a, one more video queued up, which I thought was an interesting segue. Absolutely. Okay. You want to try? <laughs> It's not made out of marijuana. It's made out of cannabis hemp. You can smoke all the cannabis hemp you could possibly want. You won't get high. I should start now. <laughs> the ultimate goal, Jay, is to introduce a the world's first carbon negative vehicle. And the key to that is going back to what Henry Ford advocated back in 1941. And that's the idea of make everything you possibly can, including your fuels, out of plant material. I think the primary market are going to be people that want to be supportive of the ecology aspect of automobiles, especially the, the younger, yeah, younger yeah. generation. I just thought it was fun that Jay Leno was doing it. With him. Yeah, I like that <laughs> when he hit it and he goes, it should start now. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah. Um, so obviously there were still a lot of people who wanted to, uh, do this right, uh, but they just couldn't get through the politics of it, right? Um, and then it wasn't until 1969 that we started to see some movement in the right direction. Um, and it, not for the reasons you might expect, right? So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, so, Cole, are you familiar with Timothy Leary? I am. But really quick, when you say for the reasons you might not expect, is it would the reasons you would expect? Because it's the 60s, man. <laughs> like, is that most people? Uh, no, actually, guess? what I meant was the reasons that you might expect is that people realized that hemp was, you know, oh, okay. bad and, <laughs> you know, and, and cannabis it, wasn't bad. And yeah. Yeah. Now, is Timothy Leary, does he have something to I the name sounds familiar, but for some reason I'm blanking on it. Is it something Timothy to do with LSD Leary. or yeah, right? He was the icon. He was a famous advocate for the use of LSD, uh, and he was a renowned advocate for all psychedelic drug research, right? Um, um, but coincidentally, and you know, he's in that song by the Moody Blues. You know, Timothy Leary's dead. Yes, yes. Oh yeah. no, he's outside looking. Anyway, so he was a renowned uh 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 for for that you know, uh, psychedelic era. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also the subject of a lawsuit in, in 1969, uh, Leary versus the United States. It was a decision that went up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Okay. And it had to do with the Marijuana Tax Act, right? This, for people who are, who lost where we're at, 
the marijuana tax act predated the Controlled Substances Act, right? And um, one of the things that it involved was a provision that the Supreme Court agreed with Timothy Leary on compelled somebody into self-incrimination. So Dr. Leary was with his daughter and son and two other people, and they were driving from New York to Mexico and back, right? And when they were crossing the Texas-Mexico International Bridge, where the U.S. Customs officer was, the U.S. Customs officer stopped them and searched their car, and they discovered uh, his uh, his daughter had marijuana, right? So Dr. Leary was driving. He was indicted, alleging that he uh, violated, you know, a subsection of the Marijuana Tax Act, right? Um, so at his trial before the federal trial court, so that, so you know, for those who don't know, there, there's a trial court, then you go to an intermediate appellate court, and then you go to the Supreme Court, right? So at the trial court level, that's the lower court, um, he admitted to acquiring the marijuana in New York and that he drove it to Texas and then to the Mexican, you know, and back to the United States. Um, so the Marijuana Tax Act levies an levied an occupational tax act. Uh, tax on anyone who dealt in the drug and and required that taxpayer taxpayers register their names and place of business with the IRS. So even today, if you found to be engaged in a legal activity that makes money, you'd have to pay taxes on that, even though you're not allowed to get the benefits of that, right? Um, but Dr. Leary contended that the Marijuana Tax Act denied him due process of law by compelling him to expose himself to a real and appreciable risk of self-incrimination if he was going to be compelled by the authorities to disclose that he did not register or pay the occupational tax. Like if they wanted to learn that through proper discovery, but the fact, but he could not be compelled to self-incriminate, right? Um, but nevertheless, the jury found him guilty on two counts. So he appealed it and he appealed it to the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit affirmed that judgment or agreed with it. So then he appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, who agreed to hear it, which is, you know, most cases that go before the Supreme Court, they don't agree to hear. Um, so the Marijuana Tax Act would have required Dr. Leary to identify himself not only as one transferring marijuana in a vehicle, but as a transferee who had not registered and paid this occupational tax. And that part of it, Dr. Leary argued, would compel him to self-incrimination. Right. Right. Um, so the Supreme Court agreed. And since compliance with the transfer tax provisions would have required him to, the Supreme Court said, quote, unmistakably to identify himself as a member of this selective and suspect group. We can only decide that when read according to their terms, these provisions created a real and appreciable hazard of incrimination. We think that a criminal statutory presumption must be regarded as irrational or arbitrary, and hence unconstitutional. We thus cannot escape the duty of setting aside petitioner's conviction. For layman, what that means, in other words, is that Dr. Leary was protected by the Fifth Amendment. And you probably have read the Fifth Amendment, which has a right against self-incrimination, right? And, uh, but the language that created that problem was inherent in the language of the Marijuana Tax Act. So it had to be fixed. 
And as you now know, in part in response to that Leary versus the United States Supreme Court, um, United States ruling, um, Congress met and they modified it. They got rid of that Marijuana Tax Act and they replaced it with the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which repealed the Marijuana Tax Act, right? Not surprisingly, the federal 1970s Controlled Substances Act continued to make no distinction between marijuana and hemp. They had an opportunity and they blew it, right? Um, and so, again, the Controlled Substances Act, which is now in effect, identifies all cannabis, regardless of whether it's hemp or, or marijuana, as a Schedule One drug, uh, you know, controlled substance. Again, with no scientific analysis of their abuse potential, none, right? And that remained the status quo until about 2018, when the farm bills started to take a little bit of control, right? So the passing of the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, what we call the farm bill, right? Um, removed hemp and hemp seeds from the DEA's authority to treat that as a schedule of a controlled substance. A few years earlier, the 2014 Farm Bill had already begun referring to hemp as an agricultural crop. But in 2018, they literally put into the Farm Bill that when it's being grown as a crop, the DEA shouldn't be looking at it as, the, as illegal hemp. Now the DEA, didn't necessarily have to agree with that, I guess, because the Controlled Substances Act was not changed, but the Farm Bill language removed hemp and hemp seeds from the DEA's authority for products containing THC levels not greater than 0.3%, right? Um, so I'm sharing the screen again. And let's see. Okay. With me? Yep, I'm with you. Okay. So, 0.3%. So, in Illinois now, for example, hemp is excluded from the definition of cannabis under what we have, which is the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act. So, this is Illinois' law. In Illinois, the uh, the Illinois Industrial Hemp Act. Um, industrial hemp is defined in Illinois as the plant cannabis sativa L and any part of that plant, whether growing or not, with a delta 9 THC concentration of not more than 0.3% on a dry weight basis that has been cultivated under a license issued by this act or is otherwise lawfully present in this state and includes any intermediate or unfinished or, or intermediate or finished product made or derived from industrial hemp. Okay. So in Illinois, it's legal. Right. But the Controlled Substances Act is still in place. Right. And it raises another question. Right, Cole? So... Cole, what is the percentage of THC that distinguishes hemp from marijuana? It's the 0.03%, right? Yeah, the 0.3%, right? 
-hmm. Okay, so here's the question. Why 0.3%? I always say it's just an arbitrary. They were just like, well, what's what's the like, what sounds the least fun? Well, let's just pick like 0.03%, but I don't know what, <laughs> that's my guess. So um, I've, I've researched this a little bit and articles have been coming out for many years with theories on why there is this 0.3% break. And, and mostly they conclude that it is an arbitrary number with no scientific or historical basis. That's what you read a lot. Uh, you know, the popular thought, though, is that a group of Canadian researchers was trying to differentiate between recreational marijuana cultivars and hemp cultivars. And they chose this 0.3% THC limit as a baseline for their botanical studies. I've seen several articles that claim that's the origin. That Got definition it. of hemp, as opposed to cannabis, uh, was developed by a Canadian researcher in 1971, uh, a, a guy by the name of Ernest Small. Okay. Yeah. But keep that date in mind, 1971, because I don't believe that's accurate. Even though you read that online, I don't believe that's accurate. And here's why. Small's arbitrary 0.3% THC limit has really become the standard around uh, many countries, including ours, um, as the official limit for legal hemp, right? Um, and it's because he published this book called The Species Problem in Cannabis um, in 1971. And that's the, the genesis that most will tell you if you ask, right? Um, but here's the thing. So the Federal Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, the Farm Bill, right? It defines hemp as whatever hemp is defined as in section 297A of the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, right? 1946. So they define it in the Farm Bill as whatever the definition is in the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, which as you know, predates 1971. Right. So what's interesting is that section 297A of the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, 1946 defines hemp as the plant, cannabis sativa L and any part of that plant, including the seeds thereof and all derivatives, extracts, cannabinoids, isomers, Acid, salt, and salts of isomers, whether growing or not, with a delta-9 THC concentration of not more than 0.3% on a dry weight basis, right? Which raises the question again, where does that 0.3% break come from, right? right? Nobody seems to know. I've gone a long way to try to find an answer to this. And this is as far back as I was able to get. In other words, there's no explanation why they used this, right? Not in the statute, not in the history leading to the statute. Yeah, and I feel like in 1946, they couldn't have even tested for THC yet. Well, I don't know. I just don't know. But I also don't think that it was a... I'm not sure on what they based that conclusion, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I don't think anyone does know why they based that. Uh, so does that mean it's still arbitrary? 
I mean, it might be, but it would be nice if you would think today somebody would sit down and come up with a scientific reason for doing so. And it's more important than you might think, which I'll talk about when you're ready. Yeah, because 0.3% is our current bar in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah. And by that bar, the 2018 Farm Bill federally legalizes hemp that contains up to 0.3% THC, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that became effective on January 1, 2023. I mean, uh, I'm not, that's not what I meant to say. Um, 2019? When, no, no. What I meant to say is the European Parliament... Mm. Up until January 1, 2023, um, had their bar at 0.2%, which again, no explanation for that. But then on January 1 of this year, the European Parliament raised that to 0.3%. Why did they do that? Just America? I mean, because if you're going to trade your product, you need to trade it around the world. What, what that would mean is that we would have all these people manufacturing hemp going forward in the United States, and they couldn't trade it in the in the base form in Europe because their bar is 0.2%. So right. in January of 2023, the European Parliament raised it to 0.3%, bringing it in line with American policy, right? Mm -hmm. Um and again, for international commerce purposes, right? You think, okay, that makes sense until you hear the rest of what I'm going to say, right? Um, so the UK is no longer a part of the European Union, right? And the UK's limit is still at 0.2%, distinguishing the bar between hemp and marijuana. Which raises the question, why 0.2%? And nobody seems to know. Wow. Right? So that raises, except let, let's look at Switzerland. Switzerland's also, also outside of the EU. Guess what their bar is? 0.1%. Okay. Um, the United Nations has a, a bar, 0.1%. Right? In Thailand, cannabis containing... 0 to 0 0.3 percent as thc is classified as hemp if it's 0 0.3 percent to 0 0.9 percent in in thailand they classify that as adult use and any marijuana products greater than 0 0.9 percent thc are classified as medical and more tightly regulated in thailand so the point i'm making is that these inconsistencies matter because if american farmers are going to be able to compete in the global market today Right. We're going to need to establish they they're going to have to grow it at 0.1%. Right. Or we need to find a way to get the world on board with a real percentage, which means somebody's going to have to sit down and, and come up with a scientific reason for whatever bar they're going to have. Right. Sure. Yeah. So like for parity, we need a legitimate scientific basis on which to base the proper percentage that can be, you know, embraced by all. Uh, and I assume that can only happen if someone articulates a specific scientific analytical reason for whatever percentage break they land on. Right. Right. And uh, we're not hearing any. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So that's pretty much what I had to say. Well, I, I was holding back what I had to say, which is that like, I, and I think it's the reason I was holding it back is because at the end of the day, I think you actually would truly agree with me, but um, I think the whole thing is just, is just arbitrary. I almost said stupid, um, <laughs> but it is just, it's like arbitrary and unneeded, but, but to your point, and I think this is the point you were trying to make again, I think you would agree with me at the end of the day on the point I just made, but to your point, if we are legally trying to give people advice on how to engage in this commerce, whether or not I think it's stupid, we need to establish a standard, right? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. it's just if, if we're going to do this, it's like everything else, you know, um, you know, it's Gil Scott here and talked about it in his music way back when uh, in the early 70s, you know, uh, if you're going to become the manufacturer, if you're going to be the producer, the producer names the tune and the consumers have got to dance. Right. Yeah. Um, and so how do we do this in a world market? We've got to come up with some standards that we could all work with. And that means we have to have a reason for those standards, you know? Uh, and honestly, uh, I guess it's going to be even more complicated because we're doing this on a state by state basis. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I was going to ask um, if uh, if you feel like this, uh, I was going to ask, I, I don't know. I, we didn't talk about this beforehand and it wasn't until you started talking about it that it, my, the light bulb started going off in my head. Are you at all familiar with the 2014 farm bill? Yes. That's where they first decided that it was a crop that the farmer should be able to grow. Gotcha. The reason I'm asking about it is there's there are companies within the state of Illinois that are operating under the 2014 Farm Bill. And I've just been wondering, like, is it still in effect? Like, how did how does that? Work? No, it's been superseded by the 2018 bill. Is there a way that. But they probably started growing in 2014 when it was permitted as a crop. Right. Well, I without guess that, I... without that additional language in the 2018 bill, which involved the DEA restrictions. Gotcha. That's that's what I, and that's kind of the impression I'm given. I'm trying to. This person didn't want to. This operator didn't want to speak on the record about it. So, uh, you know, so we didn't. But um, I am able to kind of relay w what I'm trying to ask you, which is like, they were basically saying that. So what I was asking them and what I've been asking a lot of these different hemp shops is they are selling what they call THCA flour. You know, it's not it's not THC flour, it's THCA flour. And they say yeah. they're doing it under the 2014 no, farm it bill. Is, it is definitely illegal. Well, um, see, that's where it gets murky. And I, I'm just maybe we can talk uh, and maybe you could help me find some more details uh, off air on this. But apparently there was a lawsuit against the state of Illinois saying like, hey, we're going to continue doing what is in the 2014 farm bill. And as far as I can tell, or at least what they tell me, I don't know, you know, if that's factual or not, but they they are saying, yeah, that. Oh, here. That's interesting. They were saying, though, that they were basically told that the state of Illinois is going to look the other way. Um, well, so so we do that with a lot of things. I mean, sure. the federal government's looking the other way. Right. Sure. But but whether it's illegal or not, that's a separate question. And fair, according fair. to the DEA, um, 
this is February of this year. This article came out, right? Okay. And basically what it says is, and I'll enlarge this for you. The DEA disclosed in a letter this week, February of 2023, that it considers products containing the novel cannabinoids, such as the ones you're talking about, and you've heard of these Delta-8 uh, cookies and all that stuff, and yes. um, uh, also known as THC acetate ester, to be federally illegal Schedule One substances, even if they were sourced from hemp. Wow. Yeah. You want to hear something crazy? Cra just That's to take crazy. it up a yeah. notch. Take it up uh -huh. a notch, though. One of the largest, I would say, most well-known cannabis brands just launched, and they are selling THCA flour. Have you heard of Cookies? Yeah. Yeah, if you search up Cookies THCA flour, I can do it really quick and share. I'm just – just check this out. It's kind of crazy. And the reason I am, am really fixated on this topic is because, first of all, you'll notice that this company that's doing this, well, they are active in Illinois, so they aren't selling these specific products in Illinois. You see the list is just Alabama, Alaska, Colorado, Nevada. Yeah, all, all of that. So in other words, I believe I, I might be wrong on this, but I believe the states that they are not operating in is where they are oper offering these products. And you can see they're offering flour, pre-rolls. Soon they'll be offering vapes, concentrates edibles beverages soon and again my question here and the reason i'm fixating this not to give them free advertising but to make the point that there are some flour in illinois dispensaries that could be sold as thca flour technically speaking like i see it sometimes on the menu and I, there, uh, I there's shops in illinois that are you know they're they're big on the delta eight and you know the delta eight can get you high no, but um, you get you get my point. I meant like yeah. I'm talking a legitimately licensed Illinois cannabis dispensary. Sometimes I've seen them carry flour that could be sold under the hemp bill, which I just find that. Well, well maybe you're telling it can me and maybe different. it can't. Yeah, yeah I was going to say mean, what you're telling me is different. Yeah, so. So it's it's really the same thing. If Illinois permits it, then the federal government's going to turn its head. But if you get caught, so one of the things people don't seem to realize is in all the states where marijuana is now legal in one way or another, because there's varieties, maybe it's just medical, maybe it's medical and adult use, you know, whatever, yeah. the, the you know, but in every one of those states, the arrests for marijuana related crimes has gone up. Because there's right. all these rules you have to abide by, like you don't want to be carrying cannabis where you can reach it if you're driving. That's right. illegal. You want it in the trunk. And then you're safe, mm -hmm. right? Um, so all those little nuances that people get themselves into, if they're pulled over, if they're stopped for some other reason or whatever the reason, the police are going to jump all over that because it's a moneymaker. And then you, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, again, I just wanted to bring up this topic and kind of dwell on it for a moment because this company is mail ordering this and they are they are a, a licensed operator not only in the state of illinois but, but that raises another question you've got all these people you see these commercials it's perfectly legal right to buy this you see it all the time it's perfectly legal to have this mail to you and they, it's not hey look they've got this right here you click I, I know and I, it, yeah <laughs> which is great Unless you're with the federal government, <laughs> correct? Who thinks that you're using the mail illegally? 
right. you know, and crawling over state lines. Um, yeah. Yeah. So people do things at their own risk. Uh, but I would say, you know, that's one of the distinctions. I mean, oftentimes people who are not lawyers will give what they consider to be legal advice. Yeah. But you don't want to do that if you're a lawyer. You don't want to give things that are not actually legal advice. Right. 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 Well, um, thank you for talking about this. Cause again, like you say, this is going to be interesting to see play out. This is somebody really putting themselves out there. Um, yeah. You know, so. and who knows, maybe nobody will notice. Maybe. I don't know. I feel like plenty of, maybe we'll see. I mean, I hope not. Look, I think that that's the way it should be, but you know, I'll put my feelings aside. Well, I just, Go ahead. The, the 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 annoying thing is, in my opinion, because I don't know any more than anybody else knows. But for the effort to get hemp out of the market, marijuana probably wouldn't even be illegal today. So the only, you know, the only reason we're even having this conversation is because a lot of wealthy people wanted to get a monopoly on their markets. And I actually do have some thoughts on that 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 I wanted I took a note on that I actually think that a little bit of that is still playing out to this day. Maybe not as much, but like when you talk about profits, um I've been talking to some of our elected officials. I want to get back to that topic, but really quick, I wanted to just share since we were talking about the hemp bill. Um, I wanted to share this picture that I always really like. It's uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell. <laughs> That's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. Just wanted to share that really quick. And since we were talking about scheduling, I don't know. Did you, did you see the re the most recent um, recent is of yesterday, HHS gov comment on cannabis scheduling. Did you see that? Um. I don't think so. Cool. You or if I did, it? I can't recall it. Yeah. I don't love the person that's questioning them, and I don't particularly love his angle on it, but but he got the person to um, comment, the person from HHS. Or wait, it's actually the DEA administrator to oh. uh, regarding HHS's push to get a Schedule 1 determination or a, a scheduling determination. Um, yeah, I mean, it, in any event, it shouldn't be – a schedule one controlled substance. And yeah. I want to talk about that too, but Hey, can you give our listeners background on why HHS is looking at rescheduling and just to give you the springboard, it's because by Bi uh, president Biden has told them to right? to look at rescheduling. I can't speak to that. I don't I know. I can't remember what reasons. he said. Uh, I don't know what their reasons are. Hold on a second. I'll pull that up. Actually. My guess I think is if you ask background. 10 different people, they'd give you 10 different answers. Right. But but this is this is definitely what it uh, came from, I feel like. Hold on a second. I'm pulling up the clip. Um, Biden, of course, I can't find just his speech. It's everybody's coverage of his speech. Let's see. Biden directs reschedule. If we can't find it, I'll just move on um, to what I was going to ask you about. Um yeah, I, I am not finding it. You know, it's funny is that I do have a clip that I made that really, really quickly shows what he did say. Like, I include a snippet. So I'm just going to play that. 
just so that we know what we're talking about before we talk about this latest uh, occurrence. So again, because I, I, I feel like on LeafWire, do you do you do LeafWire in your email? LeafWire? Yeah. Uh, you could try to send it my way. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Here, one moment. Biden reschedule. Because what I got today was that Mastercard um put a ban on cannabis debt card purchases that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was Biden reschedule cannabis. Okay, I see it. I got it. Here it is. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think I just found it too. Here, I'll 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 play it right now. Sorry about that. Morning, you heard President Joe Biden a potential Well, this morning you heard President Joe Biden a potential fresh start for thousands of people across the country. Pardoning some people convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law. Now he's urging governors to do the same under state law. Our Suzanne Bruner live in studio with us this morning. Uh, maybe a little bit of a hard sell in Texas. With well, this is a little bit on a little bit of coverage on Texas, so maybe not exactly. what we, yeah, go ahead and try to play what you found if you don't mind. Sure. Can you see it? Yep. It says the head of the DEA has committed to requesting a timeline from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services uh, on yeah, the so ongoing federal marijuana scheduling review process that one congressman jokingly said that he hopes will result in the drug being moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 420. Um, yeah. But, you know. Um, so that's actually but, a really good synopsis of what I was going to, to share. I, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to steal the screen really quick to see if I can um i think i found the moment of that you were just sharing um mm -hmm. so this is the administrator for the dea being questioned by representative matt gates of florida my question is this why has the biden administration not taken marijuana off the list of schedule one drugs so, Congressman, as you as you know, the president had sent a letter to the secretary of HHS and to the attorney general to to ask for the scheduling descheduling process to begin. It's now with uh, HHS. They That's what I was referring to. Thank you to the administrator from the DEA. That's probably the only time I'll ever say that. They are right. in that process. They start, then they send it to DEA. We have not received it yet. That's encouraging. When do you expect to receive that recommendation from HHS? Uh, I have not heard of a timeline from them, um, so I don't, I don't know. Well, that's unsettling, isn't it? I mean, when you don't even know a timeline, it doesn't really make it seem like something's front of mind. We sure, have thing to say. Uh, with yeah. HHS and with FDA, but we have not been given a specific timeline. W will you leave this briefing and encourage HHS to give you a timeline on getting that information to you? Uh, I, I will ask. Thank you. What was the point of that? Right. Well, um, let's just again, harass somebody for no good reason. <laughs> again, I'm not a huge, I'm not a huge fan of Representative Gates. I do appreciate him trying to get a, uh, you know, some sort of timeline. I feel like that's where he was going. But you're right. The way he uh, asks himself, or, or rather, conducts himself and asks those asks those questions is not uh, conducive to a productive conversation, by any means. Um, but but it's an uh, it's a federal administrative agency. It's going to take as long as it takes. Right. And so yeah. then the other thing that that this gets me to my other topic that I really wanted to ask you about, uh, since we were talking about the the Controlled Substances Act, 
that person who I've actually not seen this clip yet. So it looks like it's only a minute and 15 seconds. So let's watch it. Apparently that got this guy recommends we move it from schedule one to schedule 420. Let's watch the clip. Yeah, that's it. That's what I just showed you. It's a joke. I've seen FBI directors. I've seen attorney generals sit exactly where you're saying and say governmental gibberish. I'm not even going to waste the time on yeah. it. Um, no, it, he was he was just trying to be clever and smart. Well, this is why I don't like it. And here's here's I want to I'm curious on your opinion on this. Uh, this kind of goes back to some of the things we talked about with William Randolph Hearst. It touches on that in the very beginning of this, but it, it more broadly touches on um, our Controlled Substances Act. I am so curious to hear what you think about this person's angle um, on the Controlled Substances Act. Here we go. For the drug. Any drug scare story, it's never the drug. You always have to look for the root cause because it's never the drug. There's never been a drug in history. And that is why, if you look at the DEA's list of controlled substances, it's not dangerous drugs that are controlled. It's enjoyable drugs. Something like tetrodotoxin, the chemical in pufferfish, that's not a controlled substance. There's some regulations in terms of how much you can purchase, but it's not a controlled substance. Seguitoxin, the most potent known neurotoxin, it's not a controlled substance. Lead isn't a controlled substance. Mercury isn't a controlled substance. Mercuric chloride isn't a controlled substance. All of the deadly poisons, cyanide isn't a controlled substance. It's not about what's safe and what's dangerous. It's about what people like to use, what's enjoyable. What is the root? I can't hear you. Sorry, I was muted. What do you think about that idea just as a face value? Well, I'm not sure it's not an argument just to add things um, to the list as opposed to taking things off the list. Uh, because it is notable, though, you'd have, right? You'd have like, to go to, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, what it is is it's political. Yeah. Right. Um, that's the whole problem that we have. Everything's too political. Um, we, the idea of a democracy where the people have a say in what's going on in their own nation, right, is a great idea, right? But we don't raise our children to be engaged in that way. And instead, people get into it for all the wrong reasons, for money and power. And then, you not everybody, but most of them. And then that's all it's about. And these are the very people that need the restraints are, are the least restrained. And so they'll engage in statutory bills and, and passages that often are about self-gratification, trying to get reelected, as opposed to what's really best for the people that they're supposed to be uh, assisting. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's just, it, that's the problem, right? Um, and, and part of it is the corruption. I mean, if if we had an enforcement mechanism that actually worked against people with money and power the way it works against very poor people, uh, you know, then we would be able to have checks and balances that actually are effective. But if a person's, in, you know, you know, if somebody lobbies a congressperson to do whatever they do and they just do it for that reason, that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. You know, so so yeah. I mean, the 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 question is, I mean, look, you know, we alcohol is regulated, but it's legal everywhere, right? And it's very hard to argue that 
marijuana is more dangerous than alcohol. Right. And nobody really believes that. Right. But yet we continue to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. So where's the logic? It's political. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I guess what I was getting at um, was I just get frustrated about it. You know, you bring up alcohol. I hate when people are like drugs and alcohol as if like alcohol is not a drug or, you know, it's back to that controlled substances idea. You know, people talk about like how the controlled they 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 talk about the controlled substances list is you know regulating the most dangerous substances. But when you talk about the fact that it's really just fun drugs, and you know, you might say some people might say that heroin is dangerous, and maybe maybe depending on how you're doing it and the situation you're doing it in and the dose you're doing it. You know, there's different things. I don't know. It seems like there's a medical use for it, so maybe. Maybe danger comes from um, not knowing what you're doing, right? Um, that's that's just an honest question. But I guess back to the the point, it's like we've got these drugs, but it's like they're not. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of other dangerous substances that aren't on this list that you could argue are drugs, but for some reason, because they don't make you feel silly or make you feel different, they just make you die. <laughs> um, they don't. Well, I mean, don't get on to play list. devil's advocate for one second. Sure. And I don't know the answer to this question, but, you know, if you put it couch it in terms of, say, gun control or something like that, there are certain things that by other statutes have restrictions. So those things that he mentioned, they may not be in the Controlled Substances right. Act, but they might be prohibited right. by other statutes. Good point. Right. Like you're not supposed to have certain types of explosive devices, but that's not going to be in any gun control. <laughs> right. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't know the answer to that. And, and and if, you know, you have to, it would make you me wonder why it's not controlled somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I assume if it's a scheduled poison, it might be under a different statute. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I had a thought, you know, just kind of broadly about, the history of of cannabis uh but i feel like we kind of got to the hemp bill and everything and um that's where we stopped was there anything else uh that you wanted to talk about through the kind of the timeline and how we got to where we are no not without going into an entire semester of classes for sure i think you know we'll limit it to this for today and we'll talk about other things later cool sounds good well if you don't mind uh i'll just i've got a few um just random questions for you are you good on time yeah i'm fine cool um well let me start with the overarching thought that i had from the history run through that you went and then we can get to just some of my random questions about how you feel about cannabis policy in illinois or the cannabis law in illinois um so i feel like the story of the continued criminalization of cannabis everything you just laid out it seems like behind the scenes is we could make some money if we like made this illegal. Like we could we could secure our profits if we made this illegal. So that's how it started. I felt like with the um the William Randolph Hearst and the nylon, you know, trying to keep uh their chokehold on those industries that hemp was a huge competitor in and you know. It was very effective. Yeah. And and today I feel like and maybe this will get us into our kind of segue us into the 
conversation in Illinois cannabis policy today. And I've talked to representatives about this um, and I've asked them, you know, this is the way I put it with uh, Illinois representative Bob Morgan. I said, you know, um, I think I brought up a, a transportation lawsuit that's currently ongoing. And for folks that aren't aware, there's a there's a lawsuit from, uh, I guess, a prospective licensee against another prospective licensee that they illegally transported cannabis from a location to a licensed dispensary. And apparently they were not at the time licensed to do so. And in their, in their lawsuit, it alleges that they can prove that. Um, and all that they are asking for as a result of the lawsuit is that fines are issued because by law, that's what they say should occur. So I laid that case out, right? And that's still ongoing, but that's that's what they would if if it went their way, that's what they would want to go. Fines would go against the person they're alleging did the thing. And I asked Representative Morgan if I did that, not having a license, if I transported license for the purpose of sale, what would be the penalty for me, a person? And he said, I get what you're trying to say. I get like the contrast you're trying to lay out. And the contrast I'm trying to lay out is that the enforcement mechanism for cannabis in Illinois, it's not like it's not like other businesses uh, from what I've heard with other businesses, for example, like if you went into Benny's and bought a bunch of alcohol and I started serving it and at a party, for example, um, you know, somebody could pin me with like a tax fine for our, for operating without a liquor license or something like that, you know, cause I'm skipping out on, on taxes and, but that's how that would be dealt with versus again, if I bring up cannabis, it's not dealt as a tax matter or, a, you know, so much of a fine with fines, it's dealt as a criminal matter. I, you know, they throw the full weight of the law at you. And to illustrate that actually, um, uh, what what is it? Reform in Illinois. Oh, here it is. The unfinished work of cannabis reform in Illinois. It's on the Illinois State Bar Association's website. I've actually interviewed the person that that wrote this. Um, but really, I guess oh. what I'm trying. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Saying. Oh, sorry. I thought you uh, said something. Um, this is really what I'm trying to say, probably much more eloquently. So. Although the cannabis, the Illinois Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act of 2019 bought recreational adult use cannabis to Illinois, its failure to eliminate the evils of prohibition have left the promise of cannabis reform unfulfilled. Rather than repealing or softening existing criminal penalties for minor cannabis use and possession, the new law stretches a tightrope over those existing penalties and invites adult, adults over 21 to enjoy their pot out on the tightrope. One slip and the user drops smack into the old, harsh, pre-legalization criminal cannabis laws. In other words, a minor violation of the new law carries a harsher penalty than a minor violation of the old law. An example for illustration, the new law permits adults to legally possess up to 30 grams of cannabis. Prior to the new law taking effect, possession of 10 grams or less of cannabis was punishable by, punishable by a small civil fine between $100 and $200.
the penalty for 10 to 30 grams was a class miss class B misdemeanor. 30 to 100 grams, a class A misdemeanor, 100 to 500 grams, a class four felony, and so on. Under this old system, possession of a few grams more than the legal limit of zero grams incurred a small civil fine. Under the new law, however, possession of a few grams over the legal limit, say 32 grams, is not punishable by a civil fine, but a class A misdemeanor and up to a year in jail. To, to conclude and to turn it over to you, Daniel, the new law, instead of softening the penalties, essentially declares that the penalties don't apply so long as you walk the tightrope over the new law's requirements. Put another way, the new law provides a shield against the old criminal cannabis laws, but that shield materializes only in the presence of complete compliance with the strictures of the new law. Anything short of complete compliance means no shield and full exposure to the harshness of the old penalties. Sorry for taking so long on that. No, no. Um, so you're asking your thoughts, uh, just like, what, do, what are your thoughts on the shortcomings of a... Uh... Well, so you might remember I said that um, in states where it is legal in one form or another, um, arrests have gone up right. for cannabis-related crimes. Um, I will say that usually if it's a misdemeanor with up to one year, nobody ever goes to jail for those. They, they usually it's a fine. Um, and there is a progressive fine, you know, that that is taking place. I'm not sure that particular thing is as draconian as they make it sound. Um, but the point is that we make it very public that marijuana is legal in Illinois. But we don't really educate the public in any other way. I mean, we have commercials on cigarettes, we have commercials on alcohol, we have the warnings that come up on commercials, on radio, television, but we don't really do that with marijuana. So people don't really know. Like if you just take an average person, they buy marijuana legally and they keep it in the armrest of their car, they don't realize they're breaking the law. They have no idea, right? Um, but if you're educated, you know, leave it in the trunk, don't touch it, don't have it anywhere within arms of reach, and, and you're not breaking the law. So that that one distinction, right? Um, generally, if you're going to get to some of the higher penalties, um, it's because you are engaged in illegal activity. You're, you're carrying around a pound of pot so that you can sell it, right? I mean, you're not going to be doing that if you're just doing it, you know, on your own. Um, so... You should know that that's not legal at this point. And, and you know, uh, even the people who are running it that, that have gone through all the trouble to do it legally don't want it to be sold illegally because that's a problem for them. So they're actually okay with these laws. Um, the problem is there shouldn't be any of those restrictions. I mean, we don't put those restrictions on green peppers, right? I mean, if you want to grow green peppers, you grow green peppers. And, and the thing is, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, if I'm growing green peppers, that might last me a week. You know, asparagus in my land. I'm, I'm not stopping my going to the grocery store to buy produce, right? Um, so that's a little off kilter too. It's it's not easy to grow, uh, you know, a year's worth of anything or even two months worth of anything. Um, so generally speaking, unless you're in the business, it's not going to much matter. Uh, we've we've really tried to do this for money reasons more than anything else. And and that's where we lose everything. I mean, that's probably everything, right? And that's what I was going to ask you is like, again, 
the story of the continued criminalization of cannabis is profits. When I've asked some of these license holders that are pushing for changes to the current law, for example, they're pushing for they want 14,000 square foot of canopy because they're locked right now at 5,000 and they would have to go. And, and that's legitimate. And that almost passed this year. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's also the co-location issue that I've heard. I've heard them lay out some really um, convincing arguments as to why they, you know, feel it's legitimate. And I'm not arguing arguing its legitimacy. What I've asked them is, go to a dispensary and ask anybody shopping there if you know you're aware because you're a cannabis nerd like me. But go to a pot shop, and do you think any random person's going to be aware that craft cultivators are pushing for fourteen thousand square foot? Like maybe, maybe. But what I've asked them just to get to my point is why haven't you paired because they actually I talked to the Illinois Craft Growers Association. They called the canopy expansion. They called it right to grow, which kind of triggered me because as it stands, adults without (laughs) right. Well, adults without medical cannabis cards in the state of Illinois do not have the right to grow, but craft cultivators do what they don't have the right to do is open up at 14,000 square foot. So maybe it was just bad wording on their part. But what I asked him was, uh, Scott, the leader of the Illinois craft growers association, why not pair that proposal with, you know, home grow for adults so that you get the energy from the consumers to say, Hey, I love cannabis. You know, I will, I love craft cannabis and I want them to get their 14,000 square feet, but I also want to be able to have the legal right to grow. And his immediate question was, and this is everybody else. It's not just Scott. I'm not just picking on Scott. Um, His immediate question is, how does this affect the market? How does this affect the market, right? Will you stop going to the store and everything else? And I'm like, but that doesn't really, I get why you ask that as a business person, but mm, that's not where I'm coming from. Like I'm talking about ending the criminalization of cannabis. But but I do think that it's a legitimate question for a different reason, like devil's advocate again. Sure. Um, so without creating these rules in the states the way we've done it, which, by the way, I would have rolled it out entirely different, but we're we're here. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, but so we're here and, and these people are pouring a lot of money and effort into getting these licenses and getting set up. And it, it, it's not you know, it's, you're talking two million dollars. right? People are spending a lot of money. Right. Um, and, and time and effort and, and, and they're competing. And so. Um, without them doing this, it wouldn't be legal in the first place. So we have to give them their due because their efforts alone are what's making it legal and we're building statutes around it, right? Um, so then you have to say, okay, so if they're if they're responsible for making it legal in this methodology, which again, is not how I would have started going through it. I would have done it entirely different from the inception, but this is where we're at, right? then you have to say, okay, I respect that. So I do think the answer is different. I think the answer is it does not adversely affect your business. It increases your business. Because here's why, okay? And and, and I'm going to use this example again. I'm growing green peppers. My green peppers are never as good as what the professionals do, okay? I'm growing uh, blackberries, okay? And I freeze the blackberries that I grow, okay? But there's only so many of them. So no matter what I do, when I go out, I've got to buy all year round. I got to buy blackberries. I got to buy green peppers. I got to buy cucumbers, whatever it is that I'm buying, right? Uh, You know, um, zucchini, doesn't matter, right? And I'm looking for the best, what I like, right? So there's never, and, and, you know, 
uh, we have people making beer at home all the time, right? And they're the first ones you meet at at Scratch, at the dispensaries, right? They're out there tasting all these wonderful beers because they love those, you know? So I think that it's illusory to say, uh, it, it's it's incorrect to say that letting people grow their own anything would in any way impact the market if it was legal to do it. The reason that it is impacting their market is because it's illegal. People are going out of their way to get illegal product because it's illegal. If it was legal, they're, they wouldn't be so paranoid. They wouldn't think, I have to do this or that, right? And we know that because of the end of prohibition. We know that because we all buy produce. Um, I mean, it's not a mystery. They're actually creating the problem by having these restrictions is what I'm saying. You know, thank you. And to your point, to your point, I don't often have to, but, you know, occasionally I've got friends in what you might call the traditional market. And you know what they do to set their prices? I ask them, hey, how much is an ounce this week? They pull up their phone and they look at the local dispensary menu and they just set their price a little bit below that. You follow me? I do. Huh? But you know what? Even though that that's true, yeah. Um, if I had a choice and I would still do both. Right. Right. Because because here's the thing. If you've got a good product, I'm going to use your product. I don't yeah, care yeah. what it is, right? Sure. Um, and I'm never going to want to just only do the same. If there's a variety of options out there, you know, I'll have a dark beer today, I'll have a light beer tomorrow, you know, whatever it happens to be, you know, um, and I'll have my favorites, right? Mm -hmm. um, but certainly the idea that permitting anybody to grow their own pot would impact the, because here's the other thing, and this is something everybody tends to ignore, and this is super important, Right. I don't know how to grow pot. Most people who go to the dispensary to buy pot don't really either know how or want to do it. It's not like you need time on your hands to do right. something right. Okay. So if you're, if this is your baby and that's all you're doing every day and you're taking social security, whatever, um, that's great. You know, that's, that's really wonderful that you're doing that. But most people, the greater population is not sitting at home wanting to grow plants for themselves. They would, even if they do grow plants, they're not taking the time with it that they should. And they know as well as you do that their pot is not as good as what they're going to get at the dispensary. So most people, not everybody, of course, there's going to be a lot of mm -hmm. people who can do it well, right? And who have yeah. the time to do it well and who know what they're doing. But most people don't. Right. If you right. go on a hike with most people in southern Illinois, like one person will know what the names of the trees and flowers and everything are. Right. Mm -hmm. And that person knows what they're doing. The other 20 people don't know what they're doing. They're still going to go to the dispensaries to do whatever it is that they're buying. Right. So it's just illusory. It doesn't it's not really it's it's an argument, but it's just not a good argument. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I wanted to show a couple of uh, comic strips that I feel make your point, and then we can close out the show because uh, I feel like we've, uh, you know, we can have another chat one of these days. We've we've still got much to cover and much to talk about, and this topic is changing day by day, so there's never a shortage of new things to talk about. Um, I just wanted to say before we wrap and show these comic strips that I feel prove some of your points, 
but I've really enjoyed my time with you today, Daniel. So oh, thank thanks. You. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks, Carl. Yeah. So uh, this first one that I wanted to show kind of goes back to your point of both. Um, and, and I like, so, oh, and you know, what's funny is this is a comic that was inspired by my show. So you can see the first strip says, I recently appeared on the Chillinois podcast, which focus on, <laughs> which focuses awesome. on Illinois cannabis. Yeah, I totally forgot that. Anyways, I love he says, I love talking weed, but am always disheartened hearing that Illinois, who legalized in 2019, is still dealing with the same problems we have in Pennsylvania. It's the same players using the same methods with the same goal, limiting competition for the legal cannabis dollar. Consumers whose money is driving the legalization movement are not asking for much. Stop arresting us. Stop arresting those who provide us with cannabis. Let us have a large, inclusive market that is competitive and easy to access. And here, to your point, that I really love, and I feel like it puts your point in a different way. Um, we want to vote with our dollars, but cannot legally do it until everyone is on the ballot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Michigan's doing it well. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Because what they're doing is they're encouraging competition. Right. They're making it as easy as possible for anybody who wants to do any part of it to do it. And it's working. It's working better than most places. Yeah. And um, I've got. Uh, well, I'll just loosely quote J.B. Pritzker really quick. Um, he was asked in a uh press conference before I showed this last comic strip. He was asked in a press conference about uh, the success of the cannabis market in Illinois. And he said, "This is these are his own words that I'm loosely paraphrasing. He said something to the effect of, you know, some people will point to other states and say they've issued so many licenses and how that's a success. And he said, well, we're not doing that because if you do that, you could edge people out of the market and we don't want, you know, we don't necessarily want that to take place. And I understand what he's saying, but what he's basically saying is that he doesn't want competition to take place. I mean, would you agree? <laughs> like I mean, full I, I, I don't know it in context, so uh, I, I okay, would need more. Enough. Yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to respond to things I don't know enough about. Hey, man, yeah. I respect the the. I respect it. I totally, uh, my apologies. I wish I could pull up that video right now, but I just did a quick search and couldn't find it. No, no, I, I get it. Um, yeah. I mean, the real problem of course, is that they make conclusions, whether it's the 0.3% or whether it's, you know, why we shouldn't let everybody be free to do what they want to do. Um, they're basing their conclusions on what they suspect would be true, but they're not looking at the empirical data, which tells what's true, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that happens at all levels of government. And it's just, it's such a sad, you know, state of affairs because it doesn't need to be that way. It's not that complicated. All the evidence is there, you know, um, right. but we, nevertheless, that's what we do. Yep. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I figure we can watch the, or take a look at this last, uh, strip and call it a day i'm just and i just want to do one plug for the hemp cannabis symposium that's oh. at the university on yeah, uh, september 9th go ahead please tell us about it and i can put it earlier <laughs> in the show too so yeah um no we have the the hemp cannabis symposium going up uh, right uh, on on you know uh september 9 uh at the university at southern illinois university in the, in the student center 
Uh, and uh, we usually get a really good turnout and I hope everybody's gonna show up to that and listen to the speakers and learn something. And, you know, we have good booths there too. It's really nice. And plus you're, you get to visit the university and all the surrounding areas. So definitely recommend it. Yeah. And I was there last year. I think I actually might be there again this year. And so it was a really, really good time. And folks, if you want to go there, uh, like I said, I'm pretty sure I will be there. And um, it's just so cool to be able to talk to uh, people that want to learn and, and talk more about cannabis, you know. And uh, Carbondale, just as a side note, is a really awesome community. So um, that's just a, a a note that I didn't expect to, to come out of that symposium that I attended. I was like, wow, Carbondale is really, really awesome. So, And I would invite you to the, uh, to the eclipse in April, because uh, we're at the center location for the eclipse on the planet, um, except that I think every room's already booked. Oh, but I guess oh, you could find a place to camp out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I thought I just found the clip, but I, I didn't find it yet. Um, so let's look, let's look at this last comic strip. I thought I, I did find the, um, press conference folks if you do want to see it i'll share you what it is right now i just don't know the exact time and it's a 40 minute long video so i don't want to take the time right now to to come through the uh 30 second time stamp that i'm looking for but if you want to look it up it's the first social equity licensed cannabis dispensary opens in illinois it was covered by wgn news uh six months ago it looks like it was streamed live on december 7th 2022 i'll try to put a link in the description, you can see people ask him, ask our governor questions. And one of the questions he addresses is the idea of, you know, issuing more licenses. And he says something to the effect of the reason we're not doing that is because then our uh, licensees would be, quote, edged out. So should definitely check that out if you'd like to see what I'm talking about. I found the segment in the press conference that I was trying to find. Unfortunately, I'm adding this to the podcast without Daniel, so Daniel will be unable to comment on this, but because I referenced this clip, I wanted to play it, so enjoy the clip that I was trying to find during my conversation with Daniel. Here it is. But remember, um, one of the reasons that, uh, that we have had some challenges has been because we've been so focused on equity. Now, what I mean to say is I know that there are people who write about this, that there are other states that have opened up the number of licenses to hundreds and hundreds of licensees, uh, and they have more dispensaries open than we do. But the reality is that we've limited the number of licensees in part because we wanted to make sure that the social equity licensees had a fair shot in the industry and they weren't just edged out to the very end uh, and by you know having too many dispensaries in the market so that people can't make money, uh, entrepreneurs who open places like uh, Ivy Hall. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, in many ways, I, I think that the, what you all uh, view as a, you know, as a slow plotting process is also one that uh, ends up with, um, you know, the, the right uh, um, regulation and the right laws in place and the industry growing at a pace that will allow social equity to take place within the entire cannabis industry, which is one of the purposes of it. All right. That was the clip. 
back to the show. Uh, sorry, well, I, I, could... I think that's true if we continue with the current methodology, right? I think that is true if we continue with the current methodology because people are overproducing. Um, but it, it also restricts competition, which is really should be the decider. Um, also, in, in other states, what they're doing with social equity is, uh, which we might be able to do here, is to have the state, say, if you're going to be truly social equity, then have the state pay a portion of the, the building that the operation's out of. Because even if you get that money for social equity, the only way you could possibly do it, because it's so expensive, is to partner with people who do have money. And by the time they're done with you, you become a minimal part of that enterprise. Um, so it's an illusion as well. Uh, but if we provided them a space in Illinois or spaces in Illinois as part of our true direction towards social equity, they could cover the difference themselves. That would make a big difference. And let's take a look at this uh, last comic that I felt was a part of our conversation that um, is, is really core and fundamental, I think. Uh, by the way, these comics are by Brian Box Brown. It's a weekly cannabis comic called Legalization Nation. And I definitely recommend you check it out weekly because it's always brilliant. And it's got oh, that's great. thoughts like these. So in 1996, the ability to grow your own cannabis was baked in the <laughs> country's first medical cannabis law, California's Prop 215. It was one of the only legitimate sources of legal weed. That's, I think, notable about Prop 215. Yeah. For 14 years, every medical weed law in every state enacted after that included home growth for patients until 2010, when New Jersey said patients cannot grow their own medicine. They must purchase it from one of six licensed operators. Since then, patient access to home grow is no longer a given. Many medical programs do not allow it, and it remains a felony in many states. Investors will say, why do we even want home grow? Most people's won't most people won't home grow. They'll say because only a small percent percentage of people will actually home grow. It's unimportant, but they also argue it's something that can harm corporate profits. Medical home grow is becoming another piece of our healthcare system being surrendered to capitalist enterprise since the 1990s. That's Brian Box Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, well, Daniel. I think you you uh, broke the record for the longest Chillinoy podcast. Congratulations! <laughs> I hope to do it again with you some one of these days soon. So yeah, well, so you could edit it into two separate ones if you want. Yeah, now nah, now nah. people people are in it. They love the long format conversations. So okay. So. Well, anyways, uh, Daniel, anything else before we go? You mentioned the cannabis. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Cool. Thanks, Carl. I really appreciate it. Cool. Yeah. All right. No, I hope to see you here in September for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Right. Well, folks, Enjoy. we'll see you on the next episode. Take care. All right. Take care.